James chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. Let's hear God's holy, inerrant, and infallible word. Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. Let's ask God's blessing. Father, we pray that you would help us to hear the word this morning, to inwardly digest that word through the power of the Holy Spirit, And to live in accord with the word, Lord, there is always a disconnect in our sinful selves. We hear the word, we walk away, and we forget what it said. Lord, don't let that happen. But help us to store the word of God up in our heart, treasuring it in our heart and our soul, that we might not sin against you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, every good advertisement uh, company uh, or every good advertisement reveals what promotional companies uh, know about human beings. We are led about by our desires and we don't go very far from them. And more often than not, what we do is dependent upon our internal desires. Desires come easy. We're filled with them. Physical rest, gratification, ease, recreation entertainment, the desire to be better, the desire to be more attractive, the desire to be thinner, to have clearer pores, whatever the case may be, to have our ketchup run more easily onto our burgers. One way or the other, we know what desires are, and advertising companies know how to meet that need. Automobiles. If you're buying a truck or a car, surely there's a person on there with a a nice clean vest and a very attractive hairdo, or there's a woman in a very scantily clad uh, uh, dress, or there's a man with an axe in his hands and he's right next to the truck. Uh, You know what it is. Chocolate, ice cream, underwear, even a mop. It can all be sexualized, can it? There's always something else there uh, to incline our inner desires. Effective advertisers draw upon natural desires or create them in the moment that lead us to think or to desire things we didn't even know we needed. James is describing temptations in that way, and he's saying that there are temptations, uh, trials of temptations that will come into our lives, but that there is an internal desire that matches up precisely with what Satan tempts us with. And in those moments, there are temptations that will come and there will be a precise receptor within ourselves for that particular temptation. 
James is going to tell us about temptations. He's going to tell us about inner desires. He's going to tell us how the two meet. And he's going to tell us how, in fact, we are to make use of the wisdom that last week he told us to be in prayer for. Our context is simply that James is bringing us behind the scenes of the trials or trials of temptations. It's the same word that's used in verse 2. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Same word. It's the same word, and it means predominantly temptations. Or or moments or trials to sin. Verse 3 alludes to knowing that the testing of your faith... It's a similar word, but it's it's used uh, predominantly in this sense that 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 there are trials of faith or trials of temptation whose precise purpose is to test the authenticity of a believer's faith. And so, in this immediate context, James is writing to us, telling us there will be there will be moments and and there will be frequent moments in the believer's life when. We will be tested in the genuineness of our faith, and they will in fact be moments of temptation to sin. James is telling us in these verses that there is birth, there is life, there is there is death in the trials of temptation. Now he has already given us a preliminary approach to these trials of faith in verses 9 and 10. We are to glory in our high position in that in that one illustration or instance of of poverty versus wealth of people who are rich and those who are poor. He says of the poor person, one caught in poverty, that this one is to glory in their high position through Jesus Christ and that the wealthy person ought to hang their head, not in, in humiliation, in that they can take nothing with them to the grave that they will disappear in all their prominence once they leave this world like the grass which fades away. But they too are to glory in that which the Lord has given to them. And so James, James has already approached that. Glory in your high position in Christ. Be humbled in your poverty. Weep and humble yourself in contrition under the trial of wealth and the lack of want. The truth is that wealth is prosperity is a trial in the life of believers it is a it is a trial to your faith it is a it is a hindrance frankly to your faith wealth and riches have a tendency to inure us to the things of god and to our need in this world of him well there's a biblical psychology here and and in these verses verses 12 through 18 too There's truth here, biblical psychology and truth. By the terms of our creation, God intended that we should guide our lives according to the foreseeable and promised good. In other words, God has held out to us something which is good and said, pursue that good. And then he has said simultaneously, there is also evil present in the world, and therefore you should flee from have nothing to do with, don't even touch, taste, or feel that which is evil. He did that with Adam and Eve, didn't he? The tree of the life, uh, the tree of, of life, uh, he said, you can eat of that tree, the tree of life, 
but you are to abstain from and not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Do not eat it. Do not partake of it. And so he held out to Adam and Eve, this is good, pursue it. This is not good, do not partake of it. Obedience is good, disobedience is bad, and if you partake, you shall surely die. Adam was, again, biblical psychology here, to reject that which was evil, gravitate to the good, pursue the good that God offered. That is what God does. This is biblical psychology. God calls us to do and to seek that which is good and to abstain from that which is evil. And who defines what is good and evil? God. Because we we, we do not know. We would judge by our circumstances. We would judge by our own personal predilections and our inner desires, and they cannot be trusted. We ourselves cannot trust ourselves. We need to be guided by the word of God. Now, there are are many differing differing, uh, uh, views on temptation. Uh, Clearly, James is telling us that there will be trials or, or temptation. Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial. More specifically, temptation. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Some see temptation as a a complete disconnect between ourselves and what we are tempted by. It's from Satan. I'm innocent. I I merely got caught up in the moment, which is kind of partially true in the sense that, yes, it is from Satan. There's, There's no sin which we may yield to or temptation that may come to us that is not apart from Satan. Every sin that we are tempted to perform is from Satan and not from God. He is the one whispering in our ear, telling us, surely you should partake. But it's wrong in the sense that we are somehow innocent in all of this. In fact, Adam and Eve tried that excuse, didn't they? Eve said, or Adam said, the woman that you gave to me, she gave it to me and I ate. And Eve says, well, 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 the serpent told me these things, and, and he gave to me, and I ate. We're very good at shifting the blame, but James doesn't let us out from under that pressure this morning. There are many different kinds of temptations, some more innocent than others. Uh, there's a world of difference between being tempted to have a cup of ice cream uh, when we shouldn't and when it's not very good for our gut uh, because we're, we're lactose intolerant or uh, when we're tempted to have an affair or tempted to spend money on something that would actually be harmful to the home and to our children. There's a world of difference between these things. Temptation, though, is significant and it goes from ice cream to lottery tickets to running tallies of the mega ball and the 150 billion dollars or whatever the figure may be in any given week to viewing that new person at work who dresses so smartly seems to have it all together has that seductive personality and just is so very charming and who deserves a second look as they walk by 
Temptation is significant in whatever form it may take. And James tells us that there's something more uh, in temptation than just this. He'll connect our views of temptation and desire. He'll present three things to us. What God gives to the person who does not yield to temptation. Second, the character of God who is not tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone to commit evil. And thirdly, what we are and how we come to be tempted in the first place. So three things, what God gives. Secondly, the character of God. And thirdly, what we are. So firstly, what God gives, verse 12 through 17, verse 12 and 17. James recapsulates verses 2 through 4, reminds us of our basic position. We move forward, we mature, we grow by means of trials and tests to maturity. We may like it to be a different way, but the truth is we know that this is how we learn. My friend Adam got a new fishing rod this last year, and it was given to him, I think, and it's a different type of fishing rod. It's a fishing rod that I've never used throughout the course of my life, except for once or twice I bought a a different fishing rod and I used it, hated it, got rid of it, gave it away, and then went back to my spinning rods, which are an open-faced spinning reel. Uh, There's another type of rod. It's called a bait casting uh, reel. And that one, you have to keep your finger on it. Otherwise, the line will fly out. And then the spool that your finger's not on will continue spinning and produce what's called a bird's nest of fishing line. It takes a lot of skill to learn how to use that, to use the, the, the very slight amount of pressure of your thumb to make sure you've tightened up carefully the drag on the line so it doesn't just take off. Uh, And it doesn't continue spinning when you've cast out and your line has come to an end in the water. Well, it's hard to learn how to do that. At some point, after having shown Adam how to use it, his friend must have finally handed over that fishing rod and said, Adam, here, take the rod and try it. That's how you learn, right? That's how we learn about things. We actually make use of something. We actually practice and engage in the trial of using, and yes, it is, a bait-casting rod. It's really hard to use, at least for those who are not quite used to it. I've been using it most of the summer, trying to use my own, and it's driving me crazy. I haven't quite gotten the nuances of it. My brother-in-law uses it like it's nothing. He's been using one all all his life. So I can watch all the videos that I want on how to use such a fishing pole. But really what I have to do is fully engage in the trial of making use of it. And I'm going to bird's nest that line again and again and again. But eventually I'll learn something through all of those various uses of that fishing rod. That's how we learn, isn't it? How did you learn how to drive? Well, someone after explaining to you the theories of driving and all the various directions and rules about how things work and showing you how to do it, (coughs) eventually they put you in the driver's seat and said, drive. And you put it in park, or or you put it in drive from park, and you began to drive forward. You placed your foot on the the gas and, and eventually you put your foot on the brake. And now here you are, you've been through the trials of driving for many, many years, and you know things that a a brand new 15-year-old will never know. 
about driving until they grow and mature and are and pass through the trials that you've learned through. You see, this is how we learn. We learn through trials. James capsulates here and he tells us that trials and tests lead to maturity in the Christian life. And so he adds something here, though, that not only through trials do we learn how to make use of the things which God provides, but additionally, we are blessed. Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial. Blessed. Now, there's an intense and interesting meaning here. Blessed is from the word makarios in the Greek. It's happy or fulfilled. Perseverance through trials brings personal fulfillment, happiness, and enrichment. Maybe that's a striking concept to you today. But yes, in the moments that you faced severe temptation to sin, and you denied the fleshly response within yourself by the power of the Holy Spirit, and through the the, the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, and because you've been born again to a new and living hope, because the old man has died, and the new man is now has been energized by and, and brought forth through regeneration, and because you are engaged in actively living for Jesus Christ, you, you denied that sin, I'll tell you this morning that yes, it brought you fulfillment and happiness and enrichment. I'm also telling you that if you yielded to sin in some way and you yielded to that temptation this last week and you said, well, and you made excuses for it, whatever they may be, well, I have to do it. Were you fulfilled? Were you satisfied? Has your soul been enriched? Were you happy? Are you happy today? We might question all of this, but when have we ever been happy? When have we ever been fulfilled when we have yielded to temptation? When have we ever been personally happy when we have given in to temptation? And when did we ever, when we fled from temptation, when did we ever not find in some way the happy blessing of walking forward with God and giving thanks to him for rescuing us. There's a plain assertion here in the text. It is a distinct activity of God to impart blessing through trials. God intends through trials to bring you. God intends through trials to bring you and eventually to bring you to a position of joy and of enrichment, of blessing and happiness. Jesus describes in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 3 and following the fulfilled and the happy life of blessing for those who endure under trials. God is at work in all the business of trials and his intention is to teach us endurance, to impart blessings all the while as he guides us toward the ultimate goal of his approval and the pouring out of his blessings upon us such that our, our cup runs over. There's something of future reward here as well, too. It says in verse 12, Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. 
crown of life. The crown of life. What an extraordinary concept. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8, or 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 8, the Apostle Paul, reaching the end of his life, he's, he feels it in his flesh. He feels infirm. He feels unwell. He knows that he is not long for this world. And he tells Timothy this, but he says this, Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. Revelation 2.10, in the very words of Christ, Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. What is the crown of life? It is that dignity, that position, that royalty, that gladness, that rejoicing, that eternal life which Christ has promised to us. One day the Lord will place upon your head the full possession of eternal life and of blessedness with him for all eternity. There's a prize at the end of life. When the race has been run, the chief shepherd appears. He will reward your faithful endurance. Abundant and bless everlasting life awaits the Christian who endures under trial. The very hand of God waits in giving. It is in his hand. It is yours. One day you will come into full possession of it. There's also present blessing here in the passage too. There's always something that is found within and through the trial as we endure. There's always something that stays with us after we endure and deny the temptation to sin, isn't there? There's always something. When you deny the temptation to sin and you do not give in to desire, but you live God's way and all according to the mercies of God through the Holy Spirit that he gives us, We can never withstand temptation unless the Holy Spirit enables and helps us to do it. We can never stand in our own might. There's never any good work you will do in this world that comes from you. It all is of God. It's all ordained of God. He's the one who gives the gifts. He's the one who pours the Holy Spirit into us. He's the one who prompts us. You don't even, I don't even want to do the good things which God, which God has commanded in my natural self. Thanks be to God, he has caused me to be born again in you. And he has given us a new direction, a new desire to do things which which are pleasing to him. The present blessing is simply this, that the trial of the test of temptation is a sort of spiritual homework given by God in which we work out the truth and the promises of God in his word, and they settle down deep into our souls, and there's something of the residue of victory that remains such that the next time we are tempted to perform the same sort of sin, there is just a slight bit more strength than before to deny that temptation, believe it or not. It's through the exercise of working out and enduring our progress in knowledge and growing in spiritual maturity, we find joy in passing the test of temptation and we receive his blessing. Think about testing and about academic processes. Some of us are still going to school. And if you go to school, you're inevitably going to have a quiz or a test. 
And of course, we all hate pop quizzes, right? And sometimes our teachers will tell us ahead of time, uh, there may be a pop quiz next week. Now, that's a very kind and gracious warning. They don't have to tell us that. But when we study for tests, we study with the intention that the things that we learn, we would repeat it so many times and look at the information so often that it would eventually become part of our, 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 the whole body of what we know. Spiritual testing is similar to that. That as we are tested, something resides within us after the test. It remains through the process of learning. So as we study for a test in academics, we studied. The result is, as we spend an all-nighter, uh, we've studied, 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 studied. We've, we've, we've drawn up our cue cards. We've gone through the book. We've taken notes. We've taken notes in class from the professors. And so after we've done this, knowledge is increased. That knowledge remains within us. It's assimilated into our database. This is what God is doing in the trials of life. In the trials of life, these things, all of them are testing, according to verse 2 and 3. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. God's intention is to save you and then to enable you to endure. And he's going to teach you endurance through trials. Maybe we're thinking, isn't there a better way? But, but, but this is the way that we learn. As I've said, Christian, don't chafe under God's testing of your faith. Don't flee from it. The ultimate end of your testing is the very thing you need. Maturity. To grow and mature in the faith and to become more and more transformed in the image of Christ. The world says you're missing out on the pursuit of pleasure, that you're missing out on fulfillment in life itself. What you really need to do is simply come out as who you are. I've been fascinated by the story of Bruce Jenner, uh, who who was an athlete, a world-class athlete. I remember him being on my Wheaties box at home. This man, in that moment of triumph at the last of the race, and now he's known as Caitlyn Jenner. But he's still Bruce. And it's funny listening to him speak. Sometimes he'll use he as he refers to himself or or he'll use male pronouns to describe himself. He still is confused considerably about who he is. Immediately after he had surgery to replace his physical anatomy, what he did was he immediately regretted his decisions and said, and I quote, What did I do to myself? It was his immediate response to his sinful, seizing, as it were, his own desires, yielding to them and proclaiming against God and what God has physically made him. He has denied the Lord and he has affirm things about himself which are not true. But his immediate response was, oh, what have I done to myself? There was immediate regret. But now if you listen to him, and he's written a book to the very effect, 
that he has said, I do not regret this decision at all. And yet people who are close to him say that he will detransition at some point in the future. If anything, my point in mentioning this is simply to show in a very visible way is this person, he himself has made himself to be a very visible person, is to simply show that the world says what you really need to do is simply proclaim to the world what you are, come out, and live in an authentic way according to what you yourself inside know you to be. And yet, dear friend, you're only getting half the story. The truth is that the world does not find true fulfillment. The world does not find true fulfillment in all of its empty pursuits. If anything, we can see their continued response of going after time and again, the newest, latest, self-fulfilling, self-perfecting thing that they've just got to have. But you, you've been bought with a price. <clears throat> Your entire life, every moment, every day calls for endurance. And God calls you to this, proving a genuine work of redemption in your soul, converted from this pursuit of sin. You've come to an understanding of, of the vanity of this life and of this world, and you are awaiting the crown of life. More than immediate gratification, your desire is the eternal dignity and, and the life which God has promised. You will miss nothing that is temporal. All good things come from him, so it is from him and for him and to him and through him that we must endure. But is the reward of endurance and of God's crown of life that he will give us, is that, is, that, is that the best of all the experiences of God that he promises to us? There, there's another motivation here, not just that we will receive the crown of life, but blessed is a man who perseveres under trial. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. The crown of life is the response of a giving God who loves you and whom you love. <clears throat> Verse 12 says that all of this endurance under trials is about loving him. It's about his love for us. It's about we living for and loving him. All of life is a trial of love for him. Think of all the best experiences of your life. Do you love him more than all of those things? Do you find more self-fulfillment in the things that you possess or in knowing God? Do you find more happiness in the things that you have and have obtained than in knowing him. Some of us have lost our first love for him. Some of us have had the very sharp edge of our love for him dulled by the pleasures and the distractions of life. Many of us teach that, uh, many will teach, even in modern evangelical churches, that God's obligation above all things is to bless you material, materially with all the pleasurable things of this world. But I'm sorry, it doesn't say that anywhere in Scripture. And any, anyone, any teacher, any biblical preacher who will tell you otherwise is a fool. 
They're a charlatan abusing the word of God. They're misleading you. They're wolves in sheep's clothing. This isn't the way that God works. This would never work for us, would it? To simply be filled up with all the good things of this life so that we have no need nor want, so that every need and want is completely satisfied. Is that really helpful to us? You know in your heart of hearts that it is not. You know that it is not helpful for us to have everything that we could possibly ever want. We know that we learn through need. We know that need drives us to God. We know that he permits the testing of our faith, visiting us with hardships and sorrows so that he may draw us nearer to himself. We know this. Many really ponder the problem of pain, but have we, prob- have we pondered the problem of happiness? We say, well, how can God produce pain in the life of a believer whom he loves? Let me ask it differently. Why should a holy God bless us with life, life through the death of his only begotten son? And then why should this giving God give us All the other blessings of life, health, a Bible in our home, the material resources that we have. Why should God give that to us? How do we deserve any of it? How should we love him and have an absolute loyalty to him in all of our temptations, shouldn't we? Because he has saved us. He has loved us. We live by our loves. Do we love God? Does your life demonstrate that you love God? The second thing we come to in this passage is not just, is not only what God gives, but secondly, who and what God is. This is found in verse 13 and 17 and 18. I found the best way to describe what we hear and learn here is simply to to go along and say what the passage says about God. Well, firstly, he is a promising God. He makes promises and he'll never fail to keep them. He makes promises that are extraordinary, that go beyond anything we could ever ask, imagine, or think. And then he fulfills them perfectly. Not a single word of all that God has promised will ever fail. He is worthy of our love. He is extraordinarily worthy of our love. He is worthy of our dedicated, faithful, unfailing love because he loves. He welcomes and recognizes our love for him. He is always in continually searching for and calculating our love for him and fostering and pressing and moving us to love him more. Because by loving him, we are more and more inured to the world And we are less and less likely to fail and fall in temptation. His love initiates our love. His love initiates our love. We never would love him unless he first loved us. This is an explicit statement from Scripture. He is the Holy One. All that he does is holy and good. And nothing ever that he does is ever marred by sin. He is not tempted by evil. Evil can pull no can make no no claims upon God. Evil does have no hold upon God. Evil is not something that tempts God. Evil is not something that God loves. Evil is not something that pulls in God. Evil is not something that can stand before him and be in any way other than 
evil. He never makes calculations in his mind that somehow evil is something to be pursued or something that will fulfill and enrich him. He himself never tempts anyone to sin. He never tempts anyone to sin. We need to hear that. We need to hear that in our own conscience. We need to hear that in our own doubtful hearts. God never tempts anyone to sin. We can never use the complaint that somehow we ourselves are being tempted by God. In fact, James is saying that's preposterous. It's ridiculous. It's a foolish thing to say. We can say it subtly when we say, surely I'm tempted to sin, but God made me this way. Did he? Certainly God made you the way that you are, but the temptation to sin is yours. The desire for sin is yours. In the direction of your life in which you have lived it, you are a responsible being. You are responsible before God and he will hold you accountable. He himself does not tempt anyone to sin. He only gives good things. In fact, that's the statement of James here. He only gives good things. He's telling us an awful lot about who God is and what he does. But he is only, he only gives good things. If you receive something from God, even if it is a hard and trying, difficult thing, it's still good because God is good and he only does good. He is the source of all good things. Maybe you desire and you need good things. Well, God alone is the source of good things. He is the one to be approached and asked for for those good things. He gives good things freely. He is the source of all good things. He doesn't change. He doesn't shift. He doesn't vary. If you, if you know God today and you've found something about God that is true and you've come to some settled, deep conviction about it, he will not change tomorrow. You'll find that will be true about him 10 years from now, 50 years from now. God is true. He does not shift. He does not sh vary. And he does not change. He exercises his will freely. He exercises his will freely. No one can change his will. No one can thwart his will. No one can place their hands before him and make him stop. God will accomplish all his holy will. He will accomplish all that he has intended. He has depended upon no other power or influence. He is not in need of you. Did you hear that this morning? He is not in need of you. He doesn't need you to accomplish his will in the world. He doesn't need your hands and feet. He does not need you. He does not need you to complete his glory. He does not need you so that he can have someone to love. No, these are all nonsensical statements made by sentimental people that are not in any way found in the Bible. I've heard it many times. I've heard it from preachers. Well, God took so-and-so home because he just needed her to come and be with him. That's nonsense. God needs nothing. God is not in need of human beings. But God, according to his mercy, created human beings that he might glorify himself and his son, that he might show grace and mercy to sinful human beings, saving us from our sins. Somehow we are told that God created man, and I've heard it preached from a pulpit. God created Adam and Eve. He did so because he was lonely. 
God is not lonely. He is not in need of anything. He is dependent upon no other power or influence. He's not somehow dependent upon water like we are dependent upon water. We are dependent upon breath and oxygen. We are dependent upon CO2 exiting our body. We are dependent upon having the ability to produce waste and pass it through. We are dependent upon taking in and enriching ourselves with food, water, drink, all of those things. We are in need of so very many things. God is not in need of any of it. He made it for his dependent creatures. He is dependent upon no other power or influence. He is sovereign. He is sovereign. He is sovereign. All things yield to him, and so must we. He is made, and we are his people. There are no others in the world but us. Those who are of the faith, we belong to God. That's why it says in verse 18, so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. What are first fruits? First fruits are the very first and the best of the crop that is to be given to God when Old Testament Israel was was there and they were serving the Lord. God commanded that the tenth of the first fruits belong to him. And so as you went out into the orchard, as you went out into the field, as you took the, the meat of the cow recently slaughtered, the very best tenth belonged to God. It was to be brought to him. And no, God does not consume these things, but God intended that those who served him would receive these things offer a portion to him, and then receive it for their own support as they minister to the people of God. And that's true of all of us, of all that we have. The first tenth belongs to God. We are to tithe and we are to give and make offerings, but we are first and fundamentally to recognize that God calls forth the first fruits. But then he says of us, You are the first fruits. What does that mean? It simply means that God has made us his people, his special and unique people. Out of all of humanity, there is a particular portion of that humanity of those who have not bent our knees to Baals and every other foreign god and every other pursuit of pleasure in the world, but that we endure under temptation and we serve the will of God. You are a particular people set apart unto him, and he delights in you. You are the first fruits of his creation. You belong to him. He has made you. We are his people. He speaks to us in his word. We are still under the second point. There is a lot that James says here about about God. He speaks to us in his word. Did you catch that in verse... um, Uh, Verse 18, in the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. How did he bring us forth? How did he cause us to be born again? By his word. We we heard the word of God. We believed that it was true. We came to believe in in our heart of hearts, in our soul of souls, and we were saved. You see, because believing justifies us before God and the Holy Spirit the Holy Spirit regenerates our evil unbelieving heart and he produces faith that faith that comes to believe the truth that we hear he has brought us to life by his word 
God brings to life by the Word of God. He is our Creator. He has made us. We are in His hands. He is able to save you from temptation. He is our source of wisdom. When you're overwhelmed, when you have nothing left, and when you're alone by yourself and that temptation has not left you, it is with you, it is pounding upon your flesh, and you find the desires are springing up from within, God is with you. He is not far from you. He is able to save you from your temptation. He is our source of wisdom. His wisdom can help us when we are tempted. That's just a sampling of what James tells us about God here in this passage. And I'll tell you, we'll continue with the passage. We'll continue with our examination of this word at a later point in time. But I I just want you to understand this morning that this is what James is telling us about the very character of God. And I don't want to leave you without at least settling in our mind and our heart that this is the God that we serve. This is the God who sends us through trials and temptations. But we need to remember the character of God lest we complain against him. He is a promising God. He is worthy of our love. He welcomes and recognizes our love for him. His love initiates our love. He is the Holy One. He has brought us to life by his word. He is our creator and he can save us from temptation. May God help and keep you when you face moments of temptation in the days ahead. Every good thing and every perfect gift from his above is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. So may God keep you when you face temptation. May God carry you by his grace through every trial, through every difficulty. And may God accomplish that which is good in himself, in us, in the evil day. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, the hour has gone on, and we have not yet finished with this passage, but we ask your blessing upon what portion we have spent in it this morning. We thank you, Lord, for this word. We have learned something of you We need to learn much, much more of you because our our knowledge of you is so very deficient. Lord, we ask that you would more and more, more than anything else in your word, teach us about you. We ask that you would help us to endure in the evil day of temptation. We pray that you, according to your will, that you have permitted us to pass through seasons of difficulty, of trial, of temptation, You are not the one who tempts us to evil. Satan is. And somehow, Lord, it it serves your good and perfect will that we should learn through endurance. And we understand how to learn. We ask that in the testing of trials, we would endure through Jesus Christ, our Savior, that we would find his strength to be all sufficient, that we would lean upon him When the world beguiles us and pulls us in and we forget God, Lord, remind us of Christ. Lord, when we yield actually to temptation, remind us that what John says in the first chapter of 1 John, remind us that we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And that when we sin, if we repent of our sin and recount our sins to you and go to you and tell you about them and express sorrow for them in our heart of hearts. 
O Lord, you are faithful and just to cleanse us of all of our sin. You are willing to pardon our sin and forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us of all our unrighteousness. Let us see anew, let us see afresh this morning the need of our Savior. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.